Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. When was the last time you thought about death? When, if ever, have you taken time to think about your death? Regardless of your afterlife belief system, there are practical considerations. Who will provide care? What level of care will you need or want? Do you have beneficiaries? What will happen to your assets? Do you want to be buried, cremated? Do you want a service? Is there a spiritual practice you want to implement into your end-of-life plan? And then there are the questions of a more emotional, spiritual nature. Are there people you need to forgive? Are there things you need to forgive yourself for? Will not extending forgiveness cause more psychic pain at the end of life or drag out the dying process? What impact are you leaving behind on the ones you love? Answering these types of questions for yourself can be nearly impossible. Helping a dying loved one through these and other questions can be overwhelming and scary on top of the loss you're already beginning to feel. And then you add in hospice and other medical providers into the equation, and sometimes this end of life that has the potential to be so beautiful ends up being rushed and stressful, full of guilt feeling like you're making the wrong decisions or not helping enough. This is where an end-of-life doula can be a figurative and literal godsend. In our culture, where we are not accustomed to dealing with death, a doula can act as a guide, an interim caregiver, an individual to sit vigil, and more. Alex Davis is an end-of-life doula based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She sat down with me to share her experiences so far as a doula and how she hopes to continue to evolve in this role by helping more individuals and families as they walk through this end-of-life process. Join us now in conversation. Let's just start at the beginning. Can you tell us who you are and what role in the community you play? Sure. Um, so my name is Alex Davis. I'm 37. I am an end-of-life doula, and I'm also a client care manager at a local home care company 
And let's really focus around the end-of-life doula. What is that? Yes. So um, doula is a word with its roots in Greek etymology. Um, Very like way, way back, it goes back to translate to a woman who serves. It's taken on myriad meanings since then. Um, I typically just describe it or just define it, I should say, as um, a non-medical person who offers emotional support and care for someone going through a major life transition. Mm. So there are all sorts of doulas across the board. There are birth doulas, there are postpartum doulas, there are sexuality doulas, mental health doulas, um, menopause doulas, um, and of course, there are end-of-life doulas. So that's Mm. where I come in. Where did this start for you? I don't share this very often, at least not in a public way, but I think I'm getting a little more comfortable doing so. Um, I had a very profound um, ayahuasca journey Mm. in 2014. Um, And I witnessed in that journey um, two people very close to me die Mm. in the vision that I had during the ceremony. And um, since that time, I've been on this like wild journey in my life that I may have been on, may have not been on, had I not done this this journey with ayahuasca, who's to say, you know, you can never mm-hmm. say what something leads someone else or someone to. A lot of it has been around death, and I've had a lot of anxiety around death, and um, a big part of why I embarked on this journey as an end-of-life doula and decided to go through the certification process that I did was because um, I had a lot of personal qualms with the whole idea of death and whether it was the end and what it really meant. And um, it just scared the shit out of me, to be quite honest. Yeah. Like a lot of people in our culture, right? Sure. Like, yeah. It's just like a scary thing. It's the great unknown. But I really delved very deeply into it in the years since 2014, since that experience. And yeah, so... I found myself working at a nursing home, a nursing facility, a local nursing facility during the pandemic. Mm. And I found myself sitting bedside with folks who were dying quite a bit, whether or not it was from COVID. The people in my, the folks in my specific unit, which was the memory care unit, actually didn't pass away from COVID at all. It was from other things, but... um because their family members were not allowed in because of COVID, I was like the person that would sit there Mm. and be with them while they were dying. Sure. And I realized that like, this is something that is like, this is like a watershed moment for me. This Mm -hmm. is something that could be like something that could really help me get through this death anxiety that I've had like for years now. Yeah. So I learned around that time what end of life doulas were Mm. and I decided to take the course to become one. So let me ask you, because I'm really interested in this topic, too, about the ayahuasca journey. And mm-hmm. we don't have to get into it detailed, but what inspired you to go on the journey in the first place? Because it's a big topic right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a big topic. So I was, I've definitely always considered myself to be an explorer and someone who kind of like pushes the edge of mm-hmm. things. I've experimented with a lot of different things, whether or not it be substances, you know, not always substances, just like experiences. Mm -hmm. And I am a big advocate for like trying new things because it's life and YOLO and all that, right? (laughs) Like at the same time, um, I did have 
There was like a spiritual component too, for sure. Mm-hmm. That was deeper than just like me wanting to try something new. Yeah. And I've been a spiritual person. I developed my um, connection with my own spirituality beginning when I was like 25, so 2011 or so. Mm-hmm. And um, ayahuasca found me in 2014, and it was kind of just like the next step to like where I was, like wanting to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did, and I found a lot of life, and I found a lot of death and everything in between. And um, I've been discovering more and more since. Like my path was just blasted wide open, even more than it was before. So. Mm-hmm. I recently, um, and the episode actually comes out on Monday, um, interviewed a executive director of an adult day center for adults with cogn- aging with cognitive issues. Okay. And she was just talking about how much joy and sadness there is in it because there's like these really funny moments or really great moments, but it's also sad because you know you're going to lose this person and the family's going to lose this person and... So there's like, it goes hand in hand, right? And, you know, you were kind of mentioning your fears around death. And so I can imagine that now in this new role you're in, there's still that joy and sorrow, like hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're experiencing? Yeah, there's there's definitely all of it, you know? I mean, it's like a full a full life experience to be with someone at the end of their life, like, because we're still in life at that mm-hmm. time. And for me to have that life experience, it's been incredibly profound, but there are moments of relief and release and joy and bittersweet moments across the board for sure. Yeah, it's all of it. When you decided to look into this end-of-life doula, what kind of program did you need to get into to... Uh, is there like a certification? Is it just educating yourself? Is it having a mentor? What is the process? Yeah, so I um, I do the certification. Um, it was through an organization that's local to Ann Arbor um, called The Dying Year. Um, Marilyn Rush is my instructor. She's the owner of the organization, The Dying Year. I did this course in 2021, early 2021, February so it, there was like a five-week course, but it lasted through. I didn't get my certification until the end of the year because there are certain requirements that you have to kind of like fulfill mm-hmm. as you move towards your certification. You need to create like a resource list and an intake form and all these different sort of, sort of things. Um, so there's there's different layers of it. Um, so I did that in 2021. And... Yeah, then I um, ended up taking a a grief doula certification course as well, Mm. which was a little bit longer. I did that, I want to say, I think it was like mid-2022 or so. Um, Grief is, I don't mean to like go off now into like a new topic, totally, but grief is like its own own animal, you know, Mm -hmm. like its own creature. It's just, um, it's so big. And I, I... call myself a grief doula specialist is like the term or the title that I was given when I got the certification as a with grief. But I'm not totally comfortable counseling folks in their grief yet because mm. it's such like a a sensitive time. And I wouldn't want to be the person during that time that could like exacerbate it even more yeah. or do something that could like make it bigger in some way. So mm. I'm auditing the class again, so I'm going to go through it again. And that was actually through the International Doula Life Movement, which is a different organization. And they offer end-of-life doula courses as well. 
um, online. They're all, they can be all taken online, all these courses. So, uh, yeah. So if someone were to come to you and say, I want your services. Yeah. Where do you start with an individual? So I start with an intake form. Um, We go through kind of just like a getting to know you process. It's either with the loved one of the dying person or with that person themselves. um, If they're still able to communicate in that way and for us to have that sort of experience like back and forth questioning Mm -hmm. about their experience and all of that um but i like to have like a a witness there as well like a a loved one there as well usually a family member i have a doula mentor and a good friend her name's christina wall um she's also through the dine year she and i have sat with a client and gone through it together and all of that and she and actually are developing a model where we are working with folks who are dying alone, essentially, where mm-hmm. she and I work together. If they don't really have family members or loved ones or close companions, she and I kind of like collaborate together to offer the best support that we can and care. When have people been reaching out to you? Are they reaching out to you like, listen, I just got this diagnosis and the doctor said I have six months? Or are they uh, a loved one reaching out and saying, hey, I think you know this would be good for our family and for my parent or my whatever my wife, husband, and they are going, they're starting hospice soon or what's usually the time frame that people reach out to you within? Um, It varies. You know, it really varies. Just like someone going to hospice, it can vary from anywhere between, typically hospice is called when someone has six months or fewer Mm -hmm. to live or so is what it's deemed as that like time frame. But it could be like two weeks or could be less than that sometimes. So I have two clients currently who I would consider end of life, but then neither of them are on hospice. Each of them happened to be 88 years old, coincidentally. One of them I'm doing a legacy project with, which is like essentially I'm writing. I'm also a writer, so I'm writing like the story of his life, essentially. Mm -hmm. He tells me stories, and then I'm putting together this big project with like music and stories and fun things like that, photographs, et cetera. And then the other client is... She lives still in her home and she's not on she's not even really near that point. I mean, she's she's not on hospice or anything like that. I just kind of she's visually impaired though a mm-hmm. bit. So we go through I go through her mail with her and um I go through lists and I organize things. I do computer stuff for with her. I'm kind of like her assistant in a way, but it's a doula because she's transitioning to like a new period in her life where she's visually impaired and she's able to do a little bit less. It still is very much like she's at the end of her life. So it still qualifies to me as an end of life doula work right. or um situation. So it's it's really varying in when people feel the need to request your services or request a end of life doula services is sort of dependent on their level of comfort. Yeah, just like where they are. I mean, mm-hmm. I can meet them completely where they are. I've interacted and worked for and with um, people in all different kind of periods. I've even helped um, folks who are not so much end of life, but just kind of need care. They are like knee surgery, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So doula is a very like open-ended kind of concept. Like it's just anyone who's going through this like major life transition from Mm -hmm. being able to do things in like place A to being able to not do so many things, place B, you know what I mean? Sure. I'm sure you're going to encounter or have encountered different spiritual belief systems for these individuals, right? Totally, yeah. How does that play into 
the process of preparing for death from your end? Um, so I've had clients who are Catholic in different sects of Christianity. I've had clients who are Jewish. I've had a client who is who calls herself spiritual but not religious, all of those. And while I can't be that for all of them, of course, I'm, I'm not Catholic, like mm-hmm. I'm not Jewish, but I respect where they are and their beliefs. And I, you know, have read prayer books to my Catholic clients mm. and I've sat and listened and um, listened, tried to support in terms of like cooking with like kosher ingredients with my Jewish clients. And um, it's like whatever is needed is how I like will step up and try to meet them. As far as my own spirituality, I would say I am. Um, deeply spiritual and it comes from like a lot of different I draw from all the different like um mm. facets and different kind of like lanes and different spiritualities and religions across the board and I've kind of picked and chosen what makes the most sense to me mm-hmm. um and I think that's made for um my own journey to be very open and so I'm able to just understand that people are going to have their beliefs and I'm going to have my beliefs and it's all good. So, yeah. Are there, have you had any clients that were afraid because they maybe didn't necessarily have a spiritual belief or they just really did not know what was coming next? And that was, because I can imagine that if you don't have any idea of what's after this life, right? Like, well, none of us, yeah. Yeah. Well, none of us know, right? Right. So I think that there's fear regardless of anyone's religion or spirituality. Um, I definitely have fear around death still, what's on the other side, mm-hmm. um, if anything, right? Like no one knows. Um, I did have my very first formal client. She was 98 and she was Catholic. And I don't think she – she, in fact, would say often like she was like waiting for it. Like she was waiting for death. She was ready. Yeah. Um her she kind of I think she felt towards the end that um I remember her saying once that she felt like God had forgotten her. Oh. She did in fact die at ninety-four or sorry, ninety-eight, like I said. Mm-hmm. I don't think she was afraid, but there is like a laboring process. Like you labor death kind of towards the very end. If you're I guess lucky enough, you could say, to get to that point where you're you're dying like in your bed and your yeah. the elderly years and all of that. Like there's like a labor laboring process of death. Or not necessarily even elderly, but when you're laboring death and you're it's coming, but it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my feeling about that is that there's like this sort of life review that's happening yeah. in like some sort of spiritual way, or just maybe it's just in a mental way in your mind and you're going through things that have happened in your mind and in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think the more you resist, the longer it takes, the longer that laboring process takes. Sure. But that's also kind of just my take on it. That's, um, I really hadn't heard much about, but obviously I haven't been through as much, uh, end of life uh, conversations yeah. of, as I have had this year. But that's something that came up is that and like that individual having that life review and is like, is that why this uh, process is taking longer than anticipated? Because they're still sorting through something like when 
by all counts they should be gone already like what what's right. the what's the holdover you know right there's or, more to process or something yeah. like that yeah yeah i definitely think that there there could be just more to process like things to kind of reconcile in, in one's life that they haven't quite yet mm-hmm. i certainly think that's true and who knows what that person what's going through that person's head or pineal gland or yeah. whatever is happening in their in their head you know like um we don't really know that firsthand mm-hmm. um i mean i guess people there are folks who've had near death experiences and have come back from them but i'm not really here to talk about that cuz i don't know too right. much about right. that but yeah. that's the thing i guess so yeah yeah i mean there's there're kind of so many offshoots of that uh i guess question or topic but with the individuals that you've been with, how many have you been there with, if any, at the moment of passing? Actually, you... zero. Okay. Yeah, I haven't been with any with any of my clients at the last moment of their mm. of their their last breath or their last moment of life. Um, my view on that is that it's not actually my job to witness that. Um, mm-hmm. With my very first formal client, who I mentioned earlier, the one who the woman who was ninety eight um, when she passed. Her daughter-in-law was sweet enough to ask me if I wanted to be there at that time and like they could call me. And I told her that I would like to. And I felt later like I was being selfish. Like that should be a personal time with the family and the loved ones. Mm. It's not really like part of my job. And she ended up dying at four in the morning, actually. So like, I I mean, I wasn't there. It didn't happen anyway for me to be there. Um, But um, my personal feeling about this is that Part of my job is to try to support and teach the loved ones of the dying person how to be a better like death midwife for their loved one. Mm. And part of that is going through that last experience with them, with their loved one who is yeah. dying with them. And it's not my job to stand there and be witness to that. If they want me to be, I totally can be and I'm willing to be and I'm willing to hold space for that. But I think that's a really, really personal moment. Mm-hmm. So. What do you think is like the core, I guess maybe function of the role that you're playing in that in that end of life process? I mean, it's support, it's uh, comfort, it's information, it's resources, it's advocacy, it's companionship. It's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So there's okay. a lot of roles and like things that I'll offer. Do you? H- how many? Uh, individuals have their families involved with that process as well or do you see more that maybe they don't have as much support so they reach out for additional or is it the family going oh my gosh we need support we don't know how to do this it's all of those things Mm -hmm. it's all of them i have definitely helped where i i felt like was more me assisting families and loved ones and kind of like whether it be doing dishes or like giving rides or running errands, like that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then I've also just sat vigil yeah. like hours. Um and I've supported we I Christina and I together had one client that we supported who was what we call dying alone. She didn't really have um family, she didn't have any children or spouse, um and not a whole lot of support. And um, so that was like us so directly supporting her for months. She had ovarian cancer. She died um, back in the sum- early summer of this year. Um, so that was directly supporting her. She got in touch with us herself when mm-hmm. she was still totally like up and able to do so. 
But um, sometimes it is families who get in touch with us who need support for themselves. Sometimes it's in touch. They want to take a step back a little bit because they're overwhelmed and they are tired and they need their loved one who is dying to have more support. Sure. What, um, what it, I mean, I'm sure you, you have many more experiences to come, but what have been some impactful experiences that you've had with your clients? Has there been anything that changed you, whether it was just a story they told you of, from their past or a moment that happened or, or the life that they lived and how it impacted you? Have, have your clients made a, a big impact on you? Yeah, I mean, each one has. I remember all of them. I've had um, seven clients, I want to say, at this point, um, plus a few more because of my current full-time job as the care manager. I've um, interacted with a few folks who are on hospice who actually Mm -hmm. haven't died quite yet, um, but are on hospice or moving towards that point probably. But my clients as a doula, I mean, I had one client who – had brain cancer. Um, it took a little while for us to really like get in with our connection and like mm-hmm. deeply connect with each other. Like I wasn't quite sure it was going to happen from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I was Christine and I were again together with this woman, and I remember just thinking like I don't know if I'm going to have this connection with her. And this one day, I was with her just by myself, just the two of us, and it hit me. I was like, why have I not turned to music? And I turned on some music. I turned on Railroad Earth, and she's she hadn't heard of Railroad Earth. And they're like this majestic folk band from New Jersey that I used to listen to a lot when I lived out west because um, they used to play out there a lot. And she was like, who is this? Like, and it was like kind of bobbing her head in bed and just like loving it. And from there, we just listened to music all the time and like mm. shared music back and forth. And that was like our connection we had it and we both had this like we both have relationships with music and with we built a relationship with each other through that and she would tell me stories she met um she went to like an Arlo Guthrie show back when and yeah just like she told me all these different stories of her life through like our connection that was built on music so it was really cool mm, yeah I love that I uh I think it's interesting because it's like and again, we've been having a lot of conversations about this recently, like in our own home of those like end of life kind of conversations or connections and like remembering. And this also came up in the the Mountain Care episode of like remembering like they're still people and they lived lives. And so they have things that they like and dislike. And yes, are, are 100%. Yeah, they're full people still like they have full souls and within them and spirits and beating hearts and minds that are full of stories and um, probably a voice to share them with. Mm -hmm. And we should definitely pay attention to that. And we shouldn't fear just because we have a fear of death on some level, especially in this very like death fearing culture. We shouldn't let that get in the way of like recognizing that these people have so much still to share and to give. So how do we, start to change that death-fearing culture that we definitely have. We only see the shiny stuff of people's lives. Like, nobody's posting on Instagram, like, you know, here I am having uh, the last conversation I'll ever have with my grandparent as they pass. Like, no one's sharing that. And I don't think it's out of necessarily, like, 
uh, good manners because people put all sorts of things I know. online. Like <laughs> so true. People share everything. Yeah. Except for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So death work is community care. And I really feel like bringing the community into places, into spaces where death exists mm-hmm. is important. I mean, death is part of a cycle, right? Everything yeah. is. Everything is part of the cycle of life and of death and of rebirth, if you believe in that. But in nature, rebirth literally exists. Look at the seasons. Look at flowers. Mm-hmm. Look at plants, right? Like, that's all happening. So why would it not happen with us? I'm not going to go on a tangent about <laughs> rebirth in terms of life after death or anything like that. But um, I think that it's just – it's not something to be so afraid of, um, and it would – help me and it would help every person I think if we could let go a little bit of our death anxiety by recognizing that nursing homes I mean we need to give first of all we need to fund nursing homes mm. in different in like a better way in like a more lucrative way we need to pay caregivers better yeah. um, that industry is so it's just sad in terms of what we pay caregivers and mm-hmm. it's like we're caring for people at the end of their lives they should have respect and um, yeah, adequate care, you know, and um, but we don't we don't value that period of life that much. Like we, yeah. I mean, it's exactly what we're talking about in this exact question, you know. But we don't value that, and we don't um, honor it, and recognize that it deserves just as much, like care and respect as any other period of life so to answer your question like what to do per se i would definitely say like integrating like the elderly more Mm. or the elderly and the dying dying folks um into like the community in some way instead of kind of like pushing them away into like facilities and because a lot of folks like could be headed towards the end of their life but they're still very much wanting to see the trees outside and wanting to be outside and like doing fun things and not just sitting in a room Mm -hmm. looking out the window and waiting when the next person's going to come visit them if they will and I feel like I'm missing something though like there has to be you (laughs) know what I mean like there has to be some answer to this question (laughs) I know and my like knee-jerk reaction is if youth are exposed to death right I think you 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 have a better relationship with that. And then I think of like blue zones. And one of the things that makes blue zones, which are these healthier places to live and people tend to live longer and then be more active into their late 90s and hundreds. Mm -hmm. But one thing about those blue zones is that the family units are very like, uh, the children move in with the the parents and so then they kind of have built-in babysitters for the kids. And then as the right. kids are growing, the parents are aging and dying in the home. And so kids are seeing it and like... They see the process. Yeah. And their grandparents are like part of their upbringing. And it's not this, oh, you know, grandma or grandpa is five states away and we see them at Christmas and Thanksgiving or something. And then all of a sudden they're dead. Totally. Totally. They're not disconnected from it in that way, the whole yeah. process. Yeah. I mean, that is how it is in a lot of cultures. I know in like Japan and like a lot of Eastern cultures, it's that way. And a lot of like, yeah. um, I know in European, some European, Spain, for instance, like I know that like often 
folks live with their families, like their parents until their parents are elderly and dying and they take care of them. And they, I think in like almost like every culture other than ours, <laughs> yeah. this is what happens. And in ours, like we move away at 18 uh-huh. <laughs> and like we, our parents, you know, eventually move into nursing homes and it's just like this disconnected process and it's just capitalism, I swear to God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> no, know, it's like, true. Yeah. 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 I just jumped a bunch of steps, but you know what I mean? (laughs) No. No, I get get it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I kind of want to go back a little bit because I was kind of thinking about this. We were talking about um, some of the things, but before you went out to Colorado and you had that sort of life-changing experience, were you uh, on a career path to work in nursing homes or to work with the elderly or what were you doing career-wise or... Yeah. Where were you at before that? I had no idea I would have ended up on this kind of career path or trajectory like I am today. I was working um, when I had that journey at the time where I was working was I was an administrative assistant at a Buddhist inspired university in mm-hmm. Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Um, called Naropa. And um, I was working there. And I mean, my career wasn't going to be like admin or administrative assistant necessarily. It's not what I saw for myself, but it probably would have led to other things had I stayed on that, on that, Mm -hmm. you know, journey or on that path specifically where I was. And I had a partner at the time and he and I broke up a couple months after that, that ayahuasca journey, that, that experience, probably because of things that I was kind of going through and Mm -hmm. He wasn't with me when I did the the, the ayahuasca experience, and um, huge like our paths just kind of like separated, and yeah, so just everything shifted in terms of like my whole life. It was career, it was relationships, it was location, like geographic location, a lot of things. But I mean, I'm where I am today, and it's very powerful. I think a lot of the things I'm doing like just make sense for my life, and. Mm. Let me ask you, like, what, where do you see your career going and what is your hope uh, for your future as you continue down this road that I'm sure at times, I mean, it cannot be easy or are you finding it to be, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it is easy for you. Maybe it's something that feels healing for you. Um, I think I will be an end-of-life doula for my whole life. Whether or not I'm doing it in a part-time or full-time way, formal or not, um, I will be assisting people at the end of their lives. I believe my entire life I'll be doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I will probably be acting as a doula of other sorts, too, in different capacities. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite word in the world is liminal. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I am like working to become a master of the liminal space mm-hmm. and um pretty much anything could be considered a liminal space really but it's the in between and as a doula you are learning to support folks who are in a liminal space mm-hmm. and i think that that's just like a beautiful um gesture towards supporting folks in in some way that is needed. Um, So I hope to be doing this for a long time. Um, Also as the client care manager role, yeah, I hope that continues and that I um, 
evolve in that role as well. So, What advice would you have for family members that are going into being caregivers for family members that are at the end of their life? What kind of advice would you share? Um, Be easy on yourself. Mm. I think first and foremost, like really take care of yourself. Really tend to your needs. Like know that you are not going to be an effective caregiver to anyone, much less someone that you are very close with if you are not taking care of yourself and getting enough sleep as much as you can and eating and loving yourself in the ways that you need to like be healthy. Um, I think that's really important. And just to like know that like it's going to be a really hard time, but you're strong and you've been through a lot in your life. Like we've all been through a lot, especially living in the times that we're living in. Like, but just as human beings, like this is like a traumatic experience. Being a human is traumatic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like we've we've all been through a lot and um we can handle the next thing and then we can handle the next thing and then we can handle the next thing. Mm. So I really believe that to be true. It's gonna be hard. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard, but we're also equipped to handle it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. What, um, and maybe this is kind of circling back a little bit, but it just kind of popped in my head is I think people have a lot of regret because they didn't say like, Oh, I didn't tell my father that actually he was a great dad. And Mm -hmm. I, it was me, you know, like I, I made his life hell or something and he was a great dad. And I never said that. I just sat by his bedside or something. And, or, um, I never apologized for this thing and I really wish I would have just said it because I had time and I missed the opportunity. Do you, or, or, you know, um, I never asked my grandparent this and I really wish I knew what their young life was like, you know, Mm. do you have people that I don't, I want to have this conversation with my dying whoever, and I don't know how to do that or I'm too fearful. Cause I think like, there's time and we don't do it. Why don't we, you know, right. why don't we do it? If we're sitting there by the bedside and they're still, um, even sometimes when they're, they can't, we don't know if they can hear us or not. We still don't say the thing, you know? Right. Do you encounter that a lot? And and how would you advise people if they asked you about that? I haven't actually encountered that. Um, it's a really good question though. Well, I'd say in terms of the things that we have to ask or to say to our loved ones to like sort of settle some sort of like deep regret that we might have mm-hmm. or like to like qualm our, you know, our our deep-seated issues or, you know, drama or whatever it is with like a family member who is dying and then we don't say those things and then we feel a deep regret over it. Like I would say that like we live in a culture that does not know how to forgive Mm. in a society that doesn't know how to forgive. I mean, look at all the wars that are started over past, like, presidents whose fathers or past presidents started some shit, like, years and years (laughs) ago, right? Like, this is not a culture that knows how to forgive. Right. um, And there's so many other examples, but forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. And Mm. if you don't say something to someone who is dying and they die and you didn't get to say those words to them, I think that learning to forgive yourself is going to really be what eases your burden because that person already knows. Like, Mm. on some level, like, they either knew in this life or they'll know wherever they're 
essences elsewhere. Like you are the one that matters in this moment. Like you here on earth, like, and your feelings about yourself and your level of forgiveness that you give to yourself, like that's what really, really matters. And so I think talking to a therapist if need be about how to forgive yourself mm. and how to, maybe it's you wanted forgiveness from the other person. Maybe that's the case too. Um, I think I definitely, I mean, I'm not a trained therapist, of course, but mm-hmm. I, I definitely think talking to one, it's a good move. Um yeah, and I, I really think that letting go, like learning to really integrate something and let it go so that it doesn't follow you and burden you throughout your life is really, really important and not holding on to like a grudge yeah, or like the thought that somebody else like didn't forgive you. Once they die, like you only have to take care of yourself in terms of like whatever was between the two of you. Mm, yeah, so. that's really powerful. One question that I maybe should have prepped you for and I didn't, but I ask all my guests um, at the end of our episode is if you could sit down with somebody and have a conversation like we had today and they can be past or currently living, is there anybody you'd like to sit down with and have a conversation? Probably my paternal grandfather. Mm. So I was, I have, we share the same initials. Okay. Um, intentionally, like my parents, my dad wanted me to have the same initials as his father because he was like his role model and like his like guru in life. And it's not this like rainbow and butterflies type story though. Really like I'm curious about like the trauma that he endured like during the Great Depression and World War One, and how he chose to raise his kids, my father being one of them and I want to like grill him, <laughs> just yeah. like really ask him like all the hard hitting questions and yeah. like figure out like his trauma and just like why he was the way he was. Mm. So I think that'd be really interesting. I love that. He died before I was born. I just wrote um, like a companion piece to uh, the mountain care episode. And I actually was writing about like epigenetics and then also like learning about our bloodlines trauma like that ancestral Mm -hmm. trauma that like gets carried down and like okay why were you that way and then okay that's probably why my parent was that way because they were raised by someone who had this trauma and so now like i'm being raised by a parent that had that trauma from their parent and so what does that mean for me and how do i start identifying things in myself that i'm like oh this is like from my grandparent. This yeah. isn't even my parents per se. Yeah, or even farther back than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's such a thing as just like lineage, like deep lineage, like the trauma that has passed through lineage and like generational trauma and all of these things. And that is definitely passed down from many generations ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I think about that too. Is there anything we didn't cover about what you're doing as an end-of-life doula that you want to share with our listeners before I let you go? I did mention a couple, like, little things that we didn't expand on, which is totally okay, but just, like, in terms of, like, what I, like, bring to, like, yeah, uh, some, like someone who is dying and, like, their their loved ones or their family, whatever it is. Um, and I mentioned, hosp- like, advocacy, and I just wanted to mention, like, hospice advocacy. advocacy I would well. love you to talk about that, yeah. Yeah, so that's just, like, a really important component of my work um when somebody has never dealt with hospice before either for themselves of course or for a loved one potentially um they don't necessarily know how hospice works Mm -hmm. or like the ins and outs of how things happen and maybe they can't articulate 
even at that point, depending on the situation, like to ask us what they're experiencing and to have a doula really be paying attention who's visiting like every day, you know, and can see the changes that are occurring and all of these things and can verbalize that to hospice is really invaluable. So I just want to mention that as like a doula, that's a big part of my job. No, I think that's so important because uh, again, hospice is something that's come up in my life a lot this past year and I'm learning so much where I'm like, what? Also, there's been a lot of advocacy in that part. And if we wouldn't have had that or started to understand, we would have been in trouble. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Do you, did you have a doula for any of those experiences? Mm-mm. Oh, no. Would you hire one now? I would. Yeah. A little more, e- yeah. Yeah. Even just to assist on, on that advocacy part, because when you're trying to care for a loved one, I think, and when you're just trying to like soak up the last weeks or months you have with somebody. And then you're also like, let me research how to talk to hospice about this or let me, you know, and, and I know they're understaffed. And so then like, sometimes they can't, you know, provide the support that's you need. And so it's, yeah, it's really complicated and it's not my skill set either to understand the language of that. Totally. And hospice is like there to offer support, but they can't be there all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And so doulas are really like supportive, supportive yeah. folks who can hi- or can who can be hired to to bring in that extra support and care and companionship and information and all these things, resources. So No, I, I definitely would. Thank you so much for meeting with me last minute and doing this. I learned so much and it's actually just made me even more curious. So I'm sure this isn't the last conversation on this topic we'll have. Sweet. Thank you so much. (laughs) Because I have such a heart and head for poetry, I I thought it only proper to wrap up this episode with Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop for Death. Because I Could Not Stop for Death. He kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste. And I had to put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ringing. We passed the fields of grazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew, quivering and chill, for only gossamer my gown, my tippet only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than a day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. 
Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.